Hey everyone, uh, Christian here. Got some more bonus content for you this week, and the reason for that is that we're still waiting to see when we can release Chapter 3, and you have our apologies for that. Um, I'm sure that this has been a really rough week for a lot of us, uh, what with the events in Charlottesville. Um, speaking personally, though, I'm definitely angered and saddened and frightened. As a straight white guy living in New York City, um, these things tend not to hit me as viscerally as they might hit some of you. Um, so I try and, and use that position of relative safety um, to hunker down and do what I can to help that includes, but is by no means limited to, hopefully getting this show out in time for anyone who counts on it as a little spot of fun in their week. Um, unfortunately, in addition to everything else, um, Jess and I had a pet pass away this week, and uh, being perfectly honest, I wasn't able to focus much on work. Um, so in the interest of transparency, that's meant that editing is delayed on Chapter 3, and writing is delayed on Chapter 4. And um, I want to take just a moment to say for posterity that our rabbit baby was a sweet little spot of light and good in a world that um, too often lately feels dark and shitty. Um, she was loved and she will be very dearly missed. I know that it's a small thing in light of what everyone else is certainly feeling this week, uh, dearly beloved though Bebe was, so I will just add this because I've been thinking about it a lot. The first words spoken in The Once and Future Nerd are, imagine, if you can, what life is like for a rabbit. At the risk of saying the subtext out loud, that was us trying to prime our audience to think about what it would be like to be much more vulnerable than they are. Um, that's always been a core principle of the show, um, and a lot of people are very vulnerable right now, so do what you can for them. Um, be excellent to each other. I, I do hope that our fandom is a fairly wide tent. Um, I'm glad we have writers who don't always agree with me. I hope we have fans who don't always agree with us. I want our show to affirm, but I also want it to teach, and you can't teach if everybody already agrees. And uh, right now, with tensions running so high, I think those of us who are relatively safe could do better at having patient, good-faith conversations with people whose, whose views may frustrate us. Um, having said that, if your stated belief is that some people are inherently inferior to you at birth, you have thereby forfeited your claim on patience and good faith. The Once and Future Nerd, as a project and an organization, is black and brown and Jewish and female and queer and disabled. Nazis and white supremacists and their ilk can fuck off, now and forever. And to be clear, because I don't want it to seem like I'm just calling anyone I disagree with a Nazi, um, if you walk around next to a Nazi flag saying a bunch of Nazi shit like we should have a white ethno state, you're a fucking Nazi and you can fuck off, okay? So with that unfortunate necessity out of the way, uh, today's bonus content is an interview I did back in May with the man, the myth, the legend, Zach Valenti, star and co-producer of Wolf 359 and many other shows, including a cameo role in our previous two episodes uh, that several of you noticed immediately, of course. Um, this conversation was originally recorded and live-streamed for Zach's Self-Care Sunday YouTube channel uh, back in May. 
Um, so I will put a link to that video in the show notes if you want to see that. And uh, we will announce Chapter 3 release dates as soon as we can. I don't think it will be terribly long from now, um, just longer than usual, hence the bonus content. Okay, enjoy. Um, so I guess my, my first question um, for you, because I, I like to ask this of everybody, is kind of how did, what was your origin story for getting into audio drama? Like how, because sure. I know, you know, um, myself got in from a, like, wrote a TV pilot and then audio was a way to get it made. Whereas uh, someone like, like Dan Powell from Archive 81, like he's trained in audio. So I'm always interested how right. much it was, you know. Yeah, uh, I was uh, always interested since my voice dropped when I was a teenager uh-huh. in getting into voiceover. Mm-hmm. And commercial voice acting wasn't going as fast as I would have liked. Mm-hmm. Um, after college, it went like I got an agent insanely fast mm-hmm. um, from what I was expecting, but then I wasn't booking. Mm-hmm. And I had started a web series with a sock puppet. Okay. That wasn't getting a lot of traction. Okay. It was a lot of fun, but I was just kind of like hungry for something to do voice acting wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Gabrielle Urbina's post came along on my Facebook wall from mm-hmm. a mutual friend who knew I was interested in voiceover, saw his plea for a voice actor. Uh-huh. And that was that. And you knew Gabrielle from college, but you weren't, like, super close Yeah, we then. knew each other in reputation, mm-hmm. um, if not – like, we didn't spend a ton of time together. I think we, we had a half dozen conversations in, in school together. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly I just saw him from the other side of my film classes wondering how the hell he was so fucking smart <laughs> and uh, if – I were to eat his brains if I would gain his knowledge. Uh huh. Sure. Um, yeah. He's he's got that kind of uh, air about him. <laughs> he, yeah. He uh, one of the few conversations we had uh, saved my standing in the film major by putting me onto this book that um, that our the woman who had our, headed our department, Janine Basinger, wrote, mm-hmm. um, who's nothing short of uh, of a genius and a master of the medium of cinema, um, at least teaching it. Um, and yeah, that book gave me a lot of context and a lot of sort of like the things that I needed to do well in the classes that I was in mm-hmm. um, and was something that he just like had, of course, found on his own volition because mm-hmm. like he actually knew what he was getting into when he came to Wesleyan. Cause uh-huh. He went to Wesleyan because of his love of Joss Whedon, mm-hmm. I think, first and foremost, who is a filmmaker and television creator if people don't know that sure. uh you know buffy the vampire slayer yeah uh serenity uh, yeah and uh that uh, that whole universe yeah and also uh wrote cabin in the woods right with drew yeah. goddard which is one of like LOL. one of our touchstones you just, for, yeah you just mentioned yeah. Yeah, yeah um yeah great um so so you you know you represent probably two of the most iconic voices in this, you know, renaissance of, of audio drama that we're, that we're in. And something that I always like to stop it. I'm blushing. <laughs> something that I always like to talk to actors about. Um, we've talked with our cast about this a lot is like, what do you do? Is there any, is there anything in particular you do to like find a character to get back in? into a character like when how did you how did you get to Eiffel and, and Hilbert like 
when did they click for you? Anything, anything in that kind of cloud of questions of like finding and, and returning to characters. Like how, how did I um, like get comfortable playing the characters? Or yeah, like I guess. Yeah. How did you get comfortable? How did you like, was there a process to finding those characters yeah. and those voices? Did the voices inform the characters? Mm-hmm. You know, when did you feel like, Oh, I get this character. So I think there are different like stages of, of it, mm-hmm. like sort of like with those rockets and like, you know, the first stage gets you out of the atmosphere. So like early on, I think I clicked into Eiffel pretty immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a superficiality to him mm-hmm. that made him easier to play. Mm-hmm. And there's also an element of Gabrielle kind of started writing him to my voice yeah. early on because of that that partnership and just... It was going to be a one-man show, and when it became clear he wanted to work with me, he started mm-hmm. to like tweak things um, to you know to get them to gel. Um, so I think I thought a lot less about playing Eiffel, other than sort of like being that like like can't stop, won't stop radio personality uh-huh. um, that is you know just like sort of desperate for entertainment to the yeah. point that he's like turned to entertain himself, right? And it wasn't until, you know, as we went that the, you know, the backstory story started to seep in and it became yeah. more of a dramatic role than a comedic role. Sure. Um, so early on, I didn't necessarily think so much about him and it was more about the sort of affects and ticks mm-hmm. and, and, and Gabrielle's an, an awesome director. So it made it really easy to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it kind of is given weight later when you right. realize this superficiality is, you know, dealing with. Past exactly. trauma and, and whatnot. Exactly. With Hilbert, it was a lot more of a uh, a journey. Um, there was definitely more dramatic stuff up front. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And as people who are fans of the show and, and sort of watch my ancillary materials will know, like there is a drastic shift in how I voice Hilbert between season one and season two. Mm. Um, and a lot of that is we were course correcting with his character as we went in a way that we weren't with everybody else. Right. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, well, spoilers for, but like there's yeah. a big shift at the end of season one of yeah, how you think of Hilbert. Right. And we won't get into the spoilers so much as I think it's enough to say that like, we didn't know who he was when we started the show mm-hmm. and the show as it asserted itself and what it wanted to be, mm-hmm. who Hilbert was needed to sort of like shift to match mm-hmm. and uh and i think there there have been some really uh amazing creative fan uh theories for like why his voice changes uh-huh. that i really appreciate yeah, yeah yeah really it was just me figuring things out on the fly and gabrielle and i figuring things out on the fly yeah and a non-zero amount of it was realizing that um hilbert's original voice which is a little higher higher pitched and in this sort of mm. Eiffel-esque range needed to come down yeah. here to really be d- different from my normal talking voice right. so that you know um, so but uh, so yeah so but that's a little bit on the surface one of the first things that we did that helped ground me was before we ever recorded when it was just uh, Gabrielle Emma and I in a room we did improv exercises okay. where we had to stand up and ask answer questions that the other two would pepper mm-hmm. us with in character. And that's where I really sort of like first had the experience before we ever laid down track that's for a really good exercise. the pilot to be like, oh, I know who these people are. Yeah. 
it's really good. Ex- well, that's, yeah, that's uh, it's your answer. There's like there's themes to ev- to answers that every actor you know tends to give for those questions of like finding little ticks first, and then the story kind of helps them find the character. I guess um, I'm curious. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe we shouldn't do this question to avoid spoilers, but to whatever extent you want to talk about it, like, is there a moment that stands out to you in Wolf 359 as, like, a favorite moment for you to play? Yeah, um, so there's a, a part in the, the first, the second episode of season three mm-hmm. um, is an episode where uh, my character, uh, Doug Eiffel, is basically alone, having to fight for his life, and all odds look like he's 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 going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, you know everybody thinks he's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that episode was the most physically challenging mm-hmm. um, because it, it is a very it's a full body episode in the sense that like he's having to do these things to himself that um, that require me to sound. You know, kind of like I'm dying, but not in a loud way. Yeah. Um, where there are, you know, other episodes where it's like a lot of like shrieking <laughs> screaming and screaming. In space. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and all that. <laughs> this is a much more subtle episode um, in in that in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to carry a lot of it. And it was also one of the like formally most daring experiments that we mm-hmm. had taken. You know, we were using rewinding things and mm-hmm. it, it, it's a trippy episode. I think yeah. we have, it's like the first audio montage that we ever did in the this, this series. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, I think that's right. And I remember getting fan letters in from that and one person was a, a, a person who happened to be blind mm-hmm. who said this is the first montage in narrative media they'd ever consumed and that was just an that's honor. That's amazing. To, have been part of that. Yeah. It's like so cool. That's Not awesome. something I ever expected right. to hear from somebody for making a podcast. Yeah. Oh, Hi my Tiffy. Ca- my cat's <laughs> meowing. Hi Tiffy. I guess I mean that that brings up like an interesting question of like what is there any part of the the fan response that has really um surprised you, either in a in a good way or or a bad way? I think that's always an interesting thing to talk yeah. about. Um I think, you know, the biggest thing that I've been surprised by is how personally people are connected to these characters mm-hmm. and how, yeah, just like how important these people have become mm-hmm. for people that we may never meet, mm-hmm. um, like the fans that we may never meet. Um, and uh, and that is really touching. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, I think... It's also it's interesting to see uh, you know there was a uh, there's an ongoing dialogue in the audio drama world about representation sure. that I think is really critical and important and light years ahead of any other me- narrative medium that I'm aware of yeah at least in, compared to television and film I yeah. don't know so much and, about comics yeah I think yeah m- probably m- more than I think I shouldn't. Speak out of terms. I don't, I don't know a ton about yeah, comics. I, I think but. the the point being, it it naturally lends itself to a wider imagination because it doesn't have visuals that it's cramming down your throat. Right. Um, and there's fewer gatekeepers, so fewer calcified prejudices. Exactly. And, and because of that, I think some of the the, the titans in the space mm-hmm. are primarily queer. 
mm. shows and, you know, and, yeah. and really concerned with, um, in a primary, you know, in a, uh, way, uh, representation. Uh, right. Like Welcome to Night Vale is like right. a beautiful, like, romance. Right, right. Um, uh, between Cecil and, um, and, uh, oh my God, I know the actor. I went to college with, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm just I, brain yeah, farting. Yeah, Carlos. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and I, I love those guys. Um, and, and yeah, when we set out to make Wolf, it was sort of about not doing romance, mm-hmm. um, and not do, like, not doing that in the show and, like, mm-hmm. it being sort of a high tension, high stakes universe where people wouldn't talk about this kind of stuff mm-hmm. um and that's something that you know we've i think rightfully been called out on for not mm-hmm. sort of coming down on or, mm-hmm. or doing um like queer representation in particular and as um as somebody who identifies as questioning um slash queer uh it was it was like an interesting moment to be like oh wow like people are really paying attention to this and they right. really care and this is you know something that we want to do right. Yeah. I think a really hard thing being in a in a space that that is so like you said light years ahead of kind of the general place of where media is at is that there is how do I want to say this? There is maybe it it sucks that there's so that for so many people there's so little representation out there. There's so few shows in any space that show them lives and relationships that are like theirs. And because I think audio drama is so relatively good at it, I think there is sometimes an expectation that like one show could be everything for everybody and Mm -hmm. it's, and it's impossible. And it's not, it's not an unfair request. Like, People wanting to see their lives represented is an is an eminently fair request. You know, it's something mm-hmm. that 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 is really important and everyone should get. But depending on the shows and worlds that have been built, it doesn't always. If if sometimes a world can break if you try to do too much in one. It's it's a time. I mean, I, I feel like we're in a fortunate position with the once and future nerd that it's such a sprawling world yeah. that we we could eventually have like freaking anything because we have so many the room for so many characters and that's something we want to try to be better about but it, it's at least it's at least harder to do with kind of a smaller chamber play Right, feel. the pressure cooker that yeah. is the Hephaestus station, right? Where there's only the people that you already have on, and as you cram it, it feels more and more full. Um, and yeah, you know, I think what I uh, Gabrielle is just as a partner and as a uh, collaborator, just really articulate in a way that I'm not. Um, and I think the thing that he's noticed in his inbox, and he's gotten hate mail about mm-hmm. you know some of these things. Um, and threat, you know, it's just like, it's got, you know, there's, it's interesting to see, you know, what sort of comes in, um, for every choice. And this is not related. This is like literally every creative choice. Yeah. Right. There's like 50 people who tell you you're the worst and 50 people who tell you you're the best. Yeah. And, you know, there is no making everyone happy. Right. And I think it comes down to a matter of values. Right. And I think it's, you know, it's a, a, 
a balancing act of telling the story and honoring the story. Right. Um, and, you know, sort of like being truthful to the characters and, and, right. and their drama and sort of what, you know, what story wants to be told yeah. at the end of the day. And then also not stepping over things that you'd be remiss to, you know, yeah, to just absolutely. like ignore. Yeah. And I think, you know, the thing that I'm really grateful for is to be creating a show for an audience that is so conscious and mm-hmm. so so caring um, that it's something that, you know, I, I never expected getting into this. And, uh, and while not everything can be everything. Right. And I think there's a lot of, um, pressure in 2017 for everything to be everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is like for everything to be both like as entertaining as it can be, but also as representationally, um, sort of like, uh, inclusive as it can right. be while also being as intelligent as it can be while also being as like lowest common denominator as it can. And it like, right. Like it starts to get to, you know, like, yeah. Y- you can't make everyone happy. And also that it's impossible, you know, if you write, if you write real, you know, fully dimensional human beings and you have a, and you have a diverse cast, you almost, at some point, you're going to step in a problematic trope in what, cause just like, there's so many ways right. to do it, you know, it's well, to, like. To talk for a second about mental health, which is, I think the, the area, that's my area of advocacy, mm-hmm. you know, like I, um, have had a number of experiences personally, um, with mental health, um, and have a a project that I do called project uplift. That's, uh, all about raising awareness and, uh, and destigmatizing that whole conversation. Cause I think it can be fun. And like the more inclusive that conversation is, the better equip will be to deal with all of that. And we get a lot of questions like, is Doug Eiffel attention deficit hyper, you know, hyperactivity disorder, you know, like, does he have like a specific diagnosis or like, does Hira have PTSD and all mm-hmm. these things that we actually have never talked about in the writer's room. Mm-hmm. And you listen to something like Memoria and we've gotten a ton of response for that episode. Maybe, m- maybe the best piece of, uh, of audio fiction I've ever heard. And maybe the best, like sci-fi dealing with mental health that I've ever heard more is, is a masterpiece. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I, I am with you in my reverence to like what Gabrielle with Sarah's help wrote. And yeah. just like this, inc- you know, this incredible experience of like, I had no idea that Gabrielle hadn't thought about it as a mental health story. He was mm-hmm. just honoring these characters and trying to like channel their drama and what they needed. Yeah. And his thing that I really appreciate is the second that you label it and be like, well, she was just dealing with PTSD, not to diminish the, you know, the real impact that it is to live with something like post-traumatic stress disorder. My cat. Um, But labeling it does kind of flatten it in some ways where it's like, I can see there is room in fiction for that ambiguity so that more people can see themselves in it yeah, and get whatever they, they need or want out of that in a way that like I was able to listen to Memoria and hear my own anxieties in that. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be in LA at the time and uh, by the grace of Lauren Shippen was crashing on her couch and she was like sitting in a chair across the room and we were both just like weeping at this episode 
And, you know, it's like she got to hear what she needed to hear without it being spelled out of like, you know, like she was dealing with her ex disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something to that open-endedness and like letting things breathe in right. that way without defining them. Right. And that's just me. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, everyone has the right to their interpretation and right. their criticism. Right. And I think that there have been a lot of incredibly valuable and useful criticisms mm-hmm. of Wolf 359. And, sure. uh, and so that's, and, and I guess that's something that I didn't expect to, you know, come back around to your question that I didn't right. expect that I've been really grateful for. Yeah. And uh, and if anybody's listening that has more criticisms of our show, I, I just encourage that you don't sit on them, like let them be heard because we do want to grow as artists and we do want right. to learn and we have our blind spots. Right. And each and every one of us involved in the show have different ones. And so, right. y- you know... Um, well, Everybody's think, got an impression that's not their own. Exactly. And while I think that there is, you know, maybe more or less productive tenors to have that conversation sure. with, um, it is a conversation that we invite and want more of. Yeah. Yeah. No, I th- yeah, I think that's, um, I think that you got to have that that attitude and, and just talking, you know, about not being able to make everybody happy and having values. It's like, yeah, that's the, I think kind of everybody goes through the phase like when they're you know you're in like high school and you're first starting to acquire your own tastes and like you're getting probably into punk or or whatever and like you go through this phase where you realize that like all of the best art and and whatever has at some point um upset somebody and i think there's you that can calcify into an immature understanding where you say that well therefore if i'm offending someone i'm i'm doing something right and that's the the, whereas or you can take the more you know you can mature into the understanding that like no i need to think if i if someone is being upset i need to really think critically about who is upset and 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 why and like what what do i what do i value what is worth you know I don't think as artists we should ever cause gratuitous pain, right? Any, you know, we should not cause the audience any more discomfort than is 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 good, or that that helps people, um, you know, learn. But at a certain point, like that's there's a a, a a decision of values of like, you know, shit, man. Like, what what do we own? Is like this is what we've got to do to tell a story that we think is important, and what what are we just causing? Yeah, you know, gratuitous. It- I, I, and I don't know about you, but like, as an artist, as an actor, as yeah. a human being, I'm fundamentally a people pleaser. Yes. So like, exactly. it kills me exactly. when people are sad or upset about something exactly. that I do. So I just want to make it better. Exactly. And like, one of the things that I've learned in making Wolf 359 is sometimes you can't address every concern because when you get outside of an, a nuclear family and there's more than just like a couple voices in the room, right? You're gonna run into sort of irreconcilable uh, perspectives um, or hmm, not that people can't get along, but like, right. I guess basically like I've learned that it's impossible to make everyone happy. Right. And there's part of me that will always be heartbroken about exactly. that because I just want to, you know, make everyone happy, but, but you gotta, you, can't. you gotta, tr- you know, you gotta try it's yeah. It's like, it's, uh, I think 
Well, you, not you just have to. How be do I want to present? Like, there's no have to. I think like so. There's like no should. Yeah. Um, and I still like I can't help but want right to be attentive to people's opinions and perspectives and like, I guess like, I you know. And I know the the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right. but I want people to know that I have good intentions. Yeah, and uh, you know, and like, you gotta list it like you were saying before. You, even if you can't, yeah, you know, incorporate every single criticism and make sure. everyone happy. Like the good faith effort to listen is, I think, right. vital. And, and like the non, like the the part of it that just like is, I don't know. And this is like bordering on to like psychological uh-huh. uh, instead of a conversation about voice acting is like. Um, I definitely am trapped by playing the role of good boy a lot of the time. And uh-huh. so, like, there's an element to what do you, What like, do you mean? That... You know, like, I was only only child growing up. And, sure. like, I think that there's a non-zero amount of my, like, people-pleasing that is, like, you know, fulfilling that role yep. of, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm a good, I'm the good boy. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, yep. like. Only child as well. Yeah. yeah, and I, like, live vicariously through, like, my wilder friends uh-huh. growing up and, like, surrounded myself with people that, like, I could, you know, point a camera at and like right. film being the, you know, the, the weirdo. Yeah. You um, and I are similar in that yeah. regard. And like, I think I've come into my own and sort of gotten to stretch that other side, um, of, uh, of things. Yeah. Um, sort of the, the triceps to the biceps of yeah. like getting to be the weirdo. <laughs> um, and that's been a lot of fun. Yeah.